Hello, I'm Jason Solomon, and I'm back with another edition of Seen Any Good Films Lately, the podcast that gives you heaps of recommendations of what to watch on film and TV, some old, some new, and brings you the movie loves of top guests from the filmmaking world. It's so good. It's so effective. It's such a brilliant piece of filmmaking, and it must have been utterly miserable to shoot. My guest today is director Michael Caton Jones, whose career has taken him from British hits such as Scandal and Memphis Belle to Hollywood, working with Robert De Niro and Leonardo DiCaprio and with Sharon Stone to Rwanda with Shooting Dogs. And now back to his Scottish roots for girls' school coming-of-age drama Our Ladies. Our story is older than these hills and glens. It was springtime, and we had one thing on our minds. Boys. But it was a more innocent time, before social media and mobile phones changed everything forever. It was 1996. We'll hear from Michael Caton-Jones as he faces the Sagfall 10 questions, right after I tell you if I've seen any good films lately. Talk about literally blowing your own trumpet. Not only have I seen a good film lately, I've made one. And it's about jazz on a summer's day. You'll remember in the last show, I told you I was about to host the Cinedrome Film Tent at the wonderful Green Man Festival in Wales in the Brecon Beacons. Well, I've just come back. I've knocked the mud out of all my clothes and I've just about recovered. It was a life-enhancing experience. A brilliant festival. Uh, And I got the chance to make a little documentary during it with the help of Curzon Cinemas, who allowed me to show the premiere of their newly, gorgeously restored 4K version of photographer Bert Stern's classic concert doc, Jazz on a Summer's Day. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Synodrome. Fantastic to see so many of you here on a beautiful summer's day. I'm Jason Solomons. I'm your host and your programmer of the Synodrome here at Green Man Festival. And I'm delighted to say that we've reached a very special moment in my programming of this festival. We're about to show one of my favourite films of all time. It's called Jazz on a Summer's Day. We're going to travel back in time to 1958 to the Newport Jazz Festival just outside New York. And we're talking about when jazz was in its heyday, its hep heyday, when jazz was in full swing, the bebop era. It was a hipster moment for jazz. And it sort of occurs to me that 60 years later, we're having that moment again. Jazz is here on a summer's day at this Green Man Festival. We have Nubaya Garcia, fresh from her playing at the prom. We have the interplanetary cosmic rifts of Thundercat. We've got London Collective Steam Down. We've got the dance-inflected grooves of Emogene Thackeray and the Afrobeat Collective of Kokoroko. Jazz is here. You can see all of the film that I made with interviews with Emogene Thackeray and Kokoroko after screenings of the doc in Curzon Cinemas, which is looking superb in this new restoration. And it's still a brilliant document of some of the jazz greats in their heyday, as well as a great fashion film and a time capsule. I had a busy ball making the accompanying film, dashing about with my film crew on the back of one of those buggies you see at festivals, going through the mud, zipping behind the far out stage and the mountain stage backstage to interview these brilliant new female stars of the modern jazz age. So I hope you'll enjoy that little extra treat. But do watch Jazz on a Summer's Day. I can't say we rival that one for artistry or cool with, you know, Louis Armstrong and Thelonious Monk and Dinah Washington and Jerry Mulligan uh, and Mahalia Jackson. Look, it's a collector's item, that film. Uh, And, you know, my film this year, my favourite film so far is Summer of Soul. Well, you wouldn't have Summer of Soul. It wouldn't have been made in that way by Questlove uh, without Jazz on a Summer's Day by Bert Stern. So uh, that is a collector's item. Go and see that in the cinema. It will be available on a limited edition DVD and Blu-ray from the 20th of September. And basically, I'm so thrilled to be associated with it. 
Now to Michael Caton Jones, whose new film is Our Ladies, based on Morven Keller author Alan Warner's hit late 90s novel, The Sopranos. It's out in UK cinemas from August the 27th and features a young cast of Catholic schoolgirls from the Highlands who make the big trip to Edinburgh for a choir competition and have a day out that changes their lives forever. Hello, again. We'd like to report a theft. Of course, ladies. Now, were you the victims of a theft? Or is it something you've stolen? I thought you said he'd help. A man stole our school uniforms. Who was the man? Danny. And where did you meet Danny? The castle view sauna. Shell, that place is only for men. No way. I saw a few lassies in there. It's a brothel, you silly cows. Michael is one of the UK's most underrated directors, with a fantastic career that started with the still excellent Scandal, starring John Hurt, Ian McKellen, and Joanne Wally as Christine Keeler. That took him to Hollywood for This Boy's Life and City by the Sea with De Niro and the very young Leo DiCaprio. He did The Jackal with Richard Gere and Bruce Willis, the Scottish epic Rob Roy, and the indie movie Shooting Dogs about the Rwandan genocide. Of course, there was Basic Instinct 2 with Sharon Stone. That one didn't go so well. But it's a great career full of stories and insight. And it makes Michael a perfect guest for seeing any good films lately. He's back living in the UK now. And when I met him over Zoom to share all of that, I started by asking if Our Ladies was something he'd been working on for a while. Oh, my God. It's the longest thing I've ever been involved in my life. You know, 1996, I think it was, I read Alan Warner's novel for the first time. And when I read it, I thought, oh, my God, this is brilliant. This is really the story of my youth. Uh, My big sister and her pals used to be exactly like this. And I thought, well, i got to get this. I was living in California at the time, and I was working for the studios, and I had a bit of money. So I I bought the rights. Uh, I paid way over the top for them because a, a few people were interested in it. But it was something that was really personal to me. So I bought it and uh, wrote the script. Uh, I had a go at a couple with Alan Sharp uh, and they didn't work. And then I, I, I sat down and wrote the thing completely. And then I went around trying to get some money to make it. And I could not get a penny. Wow, could because, I mean, he, he it was a hot book, you know, The Sopranos. No. He, he was a hot author. Morven Caller had come out and was was quite successful in an art house way. Obviously, Lynn Ramsey yeah. and, and Samantha Morton did a lovely job on that, but a very different job to what you were, 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 were going to do, I assume. Yeah, well, I, I think there's a couple of reasons, two or three reasons at that time. I think uh, this was really a film about class and woman's place in the world, and I don't think that was particularly sexy or interesting at the time. I think society's changed, and and these stories are much more acceptable now. Well, I think they're they're they're, they're what we're looking to tell now, isn't it? That's fascinating. Yeah. That is absolutely fascinating that it's taken that that shift because right now it seems it seems completely to chime with exactly what people want. Well, exactly. I mean, that's what my I, I thought. I've lost the plot. I've completely lost the plot here. This is a this is really simple, really cheap, and will be really effective. And nobody wants to do it. They wanted me to change it to a, a, a kind of boarding school in Buckinghamshire, or you know, do it something that was more Centrinian-y. And I was like, "Fuck off!" <laughs> this is, you know, it was really personal to me because it was it was my childhood, and I'd never seen a film made about that kind of backdrop. I'd seen America, plenty of American films, and plenty of coming age films in Britain, and. In, in truth, mostly they're either really whiny and miserable about how bad my childhood was. Yes. I'm thinking, well, I fucking love my big sister and her mates. They were like, on you go, son. And I thought, it really, and, and actually, as soon as I started doing that, I, I really felt I was tapping into a, a, an un, undernourished kind of scene in British society. You know what? You it, know, it did remind me, though, <clears throat> because you took a group. And I thought that you you would be able to make this because because of Memphis Bell, which mm-hmm. thinks I'm in a group a sort of male dynamic in a particular yeah. situation. That this was you know this was the female dynamic in another in a in another situation. I mean, obviously yeah. not, not under the threat of war or anything, but that you were no. very good at group dynamics in that. Case. Yes, 
I, I, you're very, you're right on the money there because I, I because I had done a Memphis Bell. It's actually the mechanics of how do you make a film about, uh, how do you structure the, the narrative and keep everybody interested and uh, you know and and make their stories all come to a peak at the same time in the film. That structural and kind of personal work you've got to do with the actors. I learned a lot from that when I when I was young. And one of the main things that I learned was that, that if you want uh, actors to portray close, close friends on screen, you really have to invest in time before you you start getting them to know each other. Uh, and on Memphis Bell, we had sent the boys off to a boot camp and made them live with each other. And they were hor- miserable. They were young American guys, you know, desperately. It was cool to be in Britain, but they get stuck in a tent and they had to, you know, so they shit in the fields and stuff and it, it, by the end of that week they knew each other inside out and I always kept that in my mind there were things they were doing the way they were standing with each other leaning yeah. body language everything came from that so when I went to do Our Ladies it was there was a you know and you can do this if you do it early enough you budget you say I'm not going to cast anybody unless they give me three weeks before the film and I made the girls that once I cast them in Our Ladies they lived together, uh, you know, and we rehearsed them inside out for three weeks solid. I mean, one of the great things about the film for me is that you, they kind of seem as though they're not acting. They're kind of like loose and what have you, and it looks as though they're just making it up. And because you, because they're not well-known faces, you can join in on that. And and really, I, I, just, I just think what they've done is uh, kind of espoused that group ethic and they were empowered. What I like about it is that it made me feel like a teenage girl. Yeah. And that is, you know, I've never been one of those. Yeah. But I, I've yeah. known them and, and I really felt in their skin and I felt free and I felt like I wanted yeah. to do things again and, and have those experiences again. Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, I'm obviously a man and there was some question, of course, by people, why should a man make it? Yeah. Why should a man not make it? I mean, you know, as I said before, you don't have to be a murderer <clears> to make a film about a murderer. And I, I, I knew this backdrop probably better than any other Scottish director, I'd say, simply because, you know, there's not that many of us. Yeah. Uh, so, so I felt I was better placed to make that film. And that if I could get the details of their existence right, then the girls that I cast themselves would fill in the authenticity about it. It's very funny you mentioned that there aren't that many Scottish directors, although this week there's another film coming out, uh, Gillis McKinnon, who is Scottish. Oh, Gillis. That yeah. was a film film with Gillis. Were you? And he's got a film yeah. coming out this week as well called The Last Bus, with Tim Small journeying from John O'Groats to Land's End. Mm-hmm. And so I'd see that sort of that era of that. You were one of the first sort of graduates from the National Film and Television right. School, weren't you, really? I mean, yeah, you're... I was. Yeah, yeah I, I was in a rush. I had children at that point. Everybody else had just come out of university and I was like in a, in a hurry. I had to get employed because I had to feed the family. And it was, at the time, I was kind of resentful because I never got to fart about Beati. Uh, but in retrospect, it was the greatest training for being a film director because I, I had no time to waste and I had to keep moving and I had to learn this and I had to learn that. Um, and and it did me. It supported me the rest of the rest of my career. Yeah, it was a pretty. It's been a pretty amazing career, Michael. If you think it's about not it. been bad. I mean, you know, I I, I, I hesitated to go with a career because all it was was me going, oh, okay, geez, that job's finished. I better get another one. You know, I never I never really planned. I I kind of went away from whatever the film I had just done was. Uh, you know, I really like making films. I, I don't know what they say, but I really like making. You just know, being on set, the, doing the process, getting through. Well, the it. whole the whole pro is the process of making a film. That you, you start off with a, a, an idea, and these ideas are golden. You see these sort of pictures in your head, and you go, and at that moment, she looks oh, and then and, oh, you start weeping at that point. You know, you 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 do all this internal stuff to start with, but then you have to uh, break it down and actually figure out how do you reflect those. How do you make those feelings be reflected with just a picture and just some noise? They don't need to connect, but you, you, you're you trying to create a third thing, which is a feeling. Everybody says that, you know, films are, are visual mediums, but I disagree. I think they are emotional mediums. Oh, I like, I like that. No one's ever talked, no one's ever, I've you know, interviewed, honestly, about a thousand directors and no one's ever said that. And really? I think that's a really, really beautiful way of putting it, to be honest. Well, I, I watch films. A lot of my critical colleagues watch them and we talk. they talk about shots and everything. I always say to people, it's actually how they make you feel. 
That's, mm-hmm. that's, that's all I come away with is how it made me feel. And I always yes. describe them in ways that it made me feel like sort of yeah. almost synesthetic kind of. Uh, yes. Well, I think it's, it's, it's the art of film direction is to, to take ideas and feelings and turn them into something else that is open for interpretation by an audience. You could, it could be that. It could be this. It could be anything. Sometimes you have to fill in the blanks and sometimes you keep them, you keep them purposely, you know, obscured. Um, but you know, I, for me, you you ultimately have a picture and a noise, and you make a film one shot at a time. So you make that shot, and then you make another one, and then you make another one. But it, it's it must that be regularity. It must be different when you're working with someone. Often you work with young young unknowns. I suppose Memphis Bell, they were unknown a bit, but you had David Putnam producing a big big yeah. experience guy, and then this one, you, our ladies, you've got unknowns. But yeah. when you get a massive star like De Niro, who you work with yeah. twice, is that right? City yeah, Bunsy and and this boy's life. Yeah. Uh, someone like Sharon Stone, obviously in Basic Instinct yeah. too. There's a there's a different thing when when the star <laughs> brings their yeah. kind of uh, concept to it, isn't there? I think they bring less their concept to something than the the nervousness and the desire to feel as though they're looked after. You know, uh, for every movie star, they live with this knowledge that their name is bigger than the film to a greater extent. So if you're doing, say, a Bruce Willis film, uh, you, you know, he's aware that his name is bigger than, than the film. Anybody's going to get canned. It's not going to be him. So you're not going to win that one whatsoever. No studio is going to back you up in any fight you get in with them. So you have to be ahead of them. And you have to be tap dancing like a mofo all the time. It's such an energy drain. You are just exhausted all the time from, oh, God, what fucking now? What now are they coming up with? Uh, and you have to then, ah, oh, that's a that's not bad good idea no but what if that you know and you have to you're like your brain is going 100 miles an hour and you're trying to just gently say that is a stupidest fucking idea <laughs> and do that lucky lucky leonardo dicaprio was only a kid when you had him i think otherwise <laughs> yeah, yeah it's different now. no but the truth is it's so so, that, so you're you're managing their kind of insecurity a lot and their insecurity generally uh, manifests itself by demanding attention you know, it's very important for some movie stars to prove that they are number one on a set. And you just have to recognise these, oh, it's just him stamping his foot. Okay, don't get into that fight. You're never going to win them all. So you must choose very, very carefully the ones that you're going to die, the hills you're going to die on. Michael, Kate and Jones, you've given us a lovely film this week in Our Ladies, but what have you been up to? Have you seen any good films lately? Not really, because it's been I've been sitting in the house for a long time. And I don't like watching films on TV, to be honest, that much. I like to see them in the cinema. Um, but I, I, I missed when it came out, and I've been going through with my daughter for the last, we've been binge-watching uh, Breaking Bad. Oh, yeah. I, I never mm. saw any of when it came out. And I'm, like, gobsmacked how good it is. I just think it's 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 really fantastic. Have you? Because you've been doing a bit of telly yourself. Uh, yeah, now and again. I don't mind. I, you know, it takes so long, 20 years, it takes so long to, to get a job that it's like, okay, I'm going to go and do some telly now just to get back on the floor and to talk to actors, yes. you know. The truth of the matter is I like to see myself as a professional director, and um, I like to think I can turn my hand at most things, whether that's really expensive, really intimate, really technical, whatever. They're, they're all just different muscles that you use uh, when you're directing. So if you're watching Breaking Bad, are you going to f- go to Better Call Saul? Uh, that's the I, I, actually, strangely enough, I saw that first. <laughs> I, I, I saw that and I thought, oh, my God, this is quite brilliant, this opening. And now I'm seeing Breaking Bad, I'm seeing all the things that they did along the way that got them to Better Call Saul and the, the style and the tone and the writing and the acting and everything. I've also been watching, because my wife's American and she loves it, and I actually think it's pretty good, is, is uh, Hamilton, the stage play. Oh, yeah, the, the, the one that was on Disney Plus. That the, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's quite uh, quite something. I, I know a lot about American history and, uh, you know, in the States because I lived there. Uh, so I'm quite, I, I liked it a lot and I play it in the background. A lot, you know. Mm. I, I like music a lot, but I rediscovered a film I hadn't seen for a while, and I thought, oh, this is "Great!" And it's called *Hell in the Pacific*, oh, uh, yeah. John Berman's film, and it's uh, it's Lee Marvin and Toshiro Mifune. 
And it's just the two. And one's a, one's a Japanese soldier in the Second World War, and the other one's a, a, an American airman. Uh, and he wakes up on a desert island and there's none there. There's no one. He's been shot down and washed up. And it's just the two of them. And there's hardly a word in the whole film. It's spectacularly beautiful. It's really about the futility of war. It, it shows you what you can do without dialogue. And that's really important is how, how to communicate, you know, nonverbal communication on film is, is, I think, the difference between film and television. I told her that I loved her. I loved her mighty fine. And as she would come with me, I soon would make her mine. Come along, come on, Shrew, come along with me. I'll take you down to Tennessee. Come along, come on, Shrew, come along with me. And I'll take you down to That is a fantastic recommendation, Helen the Pacific. I've I've never seen it. I love John Borman and I love Lee Marvin, but I point, yeah. point point blank is one of my favourite uh, films and, of all time. And Toshiro Mifune is just I mean, you know, there's no dialogue really. Yeah. And it's so poignant at the end. The star of uh, Rashomon, uh, of course, and, uh, brilliant to see. A great recommendation. I'm going to go and see that, Michael. Well, I'm going to get hold of it and, uh, and yeah. see that. Great I, I recommend it. Yeah, very good. Well, heartily so. Uh, what's the first film you ever saw at the cinema? Uh, the first one that I have any recollection of seeing was going with my dad to see Battle of the Bulge. You know, uh, he he likes those kind of films. Yeah, but dads do, don't they? I was a kid, and actually, what it was was, uh, you know, you 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 said you're ten years younger than me, but I remember, and it's coming from a small town. You know, going to the pictures was a big deal. You know, you would go all the time. It was entertainment. It was fun, and it's. I was thinking about this. Uh, yesterday is the distance that I've travelled between just seeing them for liking them for fun to the kind of things that I like that are intellectually stimulating now. But I must get back to the basis of it. Films are supposed to be enjoyable. If they can also be thought-provoking, if they can also be all these other things, that's great. But they're meant to be a pleasant experience. And I think a lot of filmmakers forget that they're so intent on making an audience feel what they felt. But that's not necessarily that interesting, you know. Yeah. Uh, there's a whole, uh, you know, and I'm not, I, I can't knock it because I, I, I like all kinds of films, but there is a self-obsession that is now, that it's enough to make a film about someone who suffered and that will communicate, it won't. You still have to make it dramatic. You still have to do it in a way that is going to convince people that know nothing about the subject matter. You know, you still have a lot of work to do. Do you, do you obviously, you take your dad taking you to see Battle of the Bulge, is that something that every time you, you make a film that you think, oh, do you know, if I can get a father to take his son to see the, mm-hmm. this movie, then I'm then I've succeeded in some way. There's that, well, that I, primeval I, I urge from when you first had yeah. it. Yeah. I could lie and say yes. Yeah, go on. I'm um, in the psychiatrist's no, no. chair now. The truth of that, I think, for, for me as a director, the way, the way I approach anything really is you 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 look at the material and you say, what does this material, what, what style does this material demand? Mm. What is the best way? How much money do we have? How much time do we have? You can't do that for that. Who's going to be it? Yeah, they, they want that, right? Okay. It, all these things dictate. So you can start off thinking, oh, this is going to be great, but actually you don't know what it's going to be. And if you surrender to that, you've got a, a, a vague idea. It's over there somewhere. It's the actual heading towards that and all the collaboration that goes on that, to, to get you there that makes the thing what it is. What film changed your life, Michael Caton Jones? Well, there was a couple. The very first film I worked on, I, I, I was uh, a stagehand in the West End of London for um, five years. And I got a job on a film in the south of France called The Last Horror Movie, uh, doing, you know, building special effects and being a bit of a runner. And uh, it was six weeks in the south of France during the Cannes Film Festival. We were making this horror film with dodgy money from. Gibraltar, I think it was. These Americans, uh, Joe Spinell was the star. Caroline, uh, 
Carla Monroe was in it. It was the first time I'd ever seen one, I'd ever been on a set or anything. And because I was used to being a stagehand, I, I knew what, how to do stuff, how to be professional, but this was utter chaos. They, they didn't know what they were doing. You know, I had to do smoke in the street and the smoke would blow down and then it would run down and we'd run back and forth. It was utter chaos and I loved it. I thought, this is brilliant. <laughs> you know, it's like the theatre, but it's even better because you're running around with these nutters. And of course, the, the producers were all cooked up. They were going home at night, writing new scenes and coming in and saying, you know how the guy gets shot and you've prepared all the special effects? Well, he doesn't get shot now. He gets chucked off a building. Okay, right. We had to go and find the dummy and do all that. I was so, I thought, this is great. And I was watching the director. The director happened to be one of the dancers from West Side Story. And he was now a director. And he was nuts. He was just running around. He was like the Tasmanian devil. Was it was... not Russ Tamlin, was it? I don't think yeah. so. I don't think so. It's David, David Winter, I think. Oh, okay. But, um, you know, I watched him and I'm thinking... You know what? If that's direct, and I can do that, because he doesn't know what he's doing. Man. I don't, <laughs> you know. And really, it was at that point I decided because I had been writing in my spare time. I just said, you know what? I want to. I want to be a film director. That's what I want to do. So for me, I was a boy from a mining area. Well, what you do is you go and get your qualifications, and then you, <laughs> you move on. So, but I had decided this was it. Oh, great! I could be a film director, and it wasn't very sexy. It wasn't. There was no pathway for a working class boy to do this yeah. it wasn't was still remains a very middle class um you know uh, game but i decided so that absolutely changed my life absolutely changed my life the other one that did was um a film i made in rwanda called shooting dogs um, yeah, great film and, and, and i i thank you i i went there you know i had been working in california and uh, making good money and it was but I wasn't really happy with the films that I was making you know they were fine but they were you know just big and kind of soulless a wee bit so I I, I des desperately wanted to make something that was you know had, had more meat to it so I, I found that film and I went to Rwanda spent six months there filming and it was the first experience that I had of, of, of really making something that was based on people's real lives and I found that my job was to interpret and to be a conduit to what happened to them and to translate that in a way that people might uh, understand uh, from the West. And it was a, a, res a huge responsibility that I've never had in a film before. But it, it, it you know, just wakened up my, uh, you know, the, the feelings of humanity yeah. and the realization that this could happen anywhere. Republic of Rwanda. Do you want to call it home? No, thanks. I spoke to mum last week. I'd call her again if I were you. There are people at the gate. Tell them to open the gate. This is a military base, not a refugee camp. Actually, it's a school. My school. When it started off, it was just the army doing the killings. Now it's spreading to everyone. Stop! Go back! They're never going to show this. Just get it on tape, Mark. You are being slowly surrounded. No one's safety can be guaranteed now. If you do not come, you will die. It's very simple. They're only taking the whites. about these people. You'll never leave us, Papa Christopher. You are in my heart until I die. And the fabulous John Hurt as well. And, and John Hurt. I mean, this was my third picture with John. And uh, he was fantastic. You know, the first couple, he had been drunk <laughs> through them. So I was like, I was dealing with half a John. And um, on, on Shooting Dogs, he was there throughout. And... It, he, it's a terrific performance by him, a really good performance. Really, one, Yeah, I think one of his best ones. Um, did you watch films as research for Our Ladies? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> there was no point to I see it. you didn't it. need to because you, you grew up I, there. I didn't, exactly that. You know, it was, it was actually a matter of staying away from anything that was dealing with that subject. Um, but there was when I started, there were definitely two things, two films that I had in mind that I, that I wanted to... to not take anything physical from, but, just, but a tone or a feeling or, a, or an idea. And one was uh, American Graffiti. Oh, lovely film. Because if you think, if you know American Graffiti, it's it's all set in one night. Everything happens on one night, and it's 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 similar. It's young people, and it's like we're going out tonight because we might never happen. It might never happen again. So there was I definitely wanted to try and take 
that feeling, which we think about America, we think about the States all the time, about, you know, how wonderful it must have been in the 50s and what have you. But actually, it was wonderful here in the 90s. Man, come on, get with the program. Um, so I, I I wanted to give it that feeling of kind of chaos, anything could happen. And also the the commitments. You know, I, I wanted to make something that was a blend of the two. There was a kind of roughness and a reality about the commitments and a believability and a, a recognition of that that world. And, and I wanted to sort of merge those two together. It was funny because so, looking, looking back on your career, when I was just starting looking back at, because I knew I was going to talk to you, I thought to myself, oh, he's got, maybe it was Matthew Modine in Memphis Bell. Mm-hmm. I, I thought, oh, you know what? The only one I can see that is similar to him is Alan Parker. Yeah. Is that a sort of yeah. similar trajectory to you? Yeah. Well, strangely enough, Alan Parker was on my uh, panel when I went to the film school, when I went to try and get into film school. And he was, you know, he was hitting me pretty hard because he was like, a, a, you know, the only working class guy there. Yeah. And I was giving him it back because I was, of course, hung over from the night before when I went to, when I went to the biggest interview of my life. <laughs> <laughs> so I was giving him some shit back and... Uh, he kind of did a, he did a, I had written a script about me going to film school and how everybody had beards at that time. All filmmakers had beards and they had to be, you know, David Putnam had a beard. <laughs> and um, so he wrote, he did a, he stole that idea and did some cartoons about people waiting for, you know, all these bearded people waiting for film school applications. So yeah, <laughs> you, you, you got immortalised. Yeah, but it was just the way that, you know, he, he, he did some, you know, he did some war stuff. He did some yeah. reminiscence of period stuff. They went to America and did some yeah. sort of thrillers. Well, I, you know, Alan was a big influence on me. I thought he was a terrific filmmaker yeah. and really a nice man. Yeah, as well. absolutely. Uh, I'm looking at you now here in your, in your house. It looks like you've got some sort of uh, Cartier-Bresson prints or some photographs. I do, actually. I have some Cartier-Bresson's. Uh, this is a uh, Bert Hardy. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 of course. It's Shirley Baker. Oh, they're oh, beautiful. Uh, um, so they're not film posters, but did you used to have film no. posters on your wall? Actually, I did not. I don't think I've ever had a film poster apart from my own in my life. Oh, wait, have you allowed your own? <laughs> I was allowed my own. But no, when I was young and a teenager, I was uh, I was into music. Music was everything for us in Scotland at that point. Uh, I was a punk, you know, and uh, I came down to London in 1976, and that really was the more definitive stage for me. Uh, it was actually by being a punk that I decided to become a director because it was like, as I say, you know, I didn't know anybody who had been in film before. I didn't know anything about it. Nobody, you know, it was not a thing. But when punk came along, it was, well, you just go do it. Just do it. So that was what I did. I, I was filled full of that philosophy, you know, stand up for what's right and just do it. It doesn't matter. Go bang. And and it was what pushed me forward, yeah. you know, really. So so that, I was more into music at that point. So the same, same as most everyone. Understandably. What, uh, what, fil- or fil- what film posters of your own do you have, still have? Have you got any in your house? Uh, yeah, I have, you know. If I don't have them, who's going to have them? <laughs> no, they're all, they're all stacked up in, in things facing the wall. Oh, you haven't got one at the top of the stairs. Just the, the, uh, the if you no, had one, if you had one from your career, which is which, which one would you sort of put up and say that's the one I did, and that's I love that poster. It's got everything about me on it. On it. Uh, I like shooting dogs poster. Uh, I like I like the early ones of Scandal as well. Oh yeah. That's a great poster. I'd have scandal on my wall. Yeah, I think I yeah, have yeah. That. I've certainly had Christian Keeler on my wall at some yeah, point. Yeah, I know. I have about the because Palace made about four different types at that point, and uh, I've got a big black one with strips. It's kind of Saul Bassey, and it's got like John Horton and Joanne and Scandal. It's it's pretty nifty, actually. It's pretty stylish. Yeah, Scandal still looks like a great poster. Still a great, still well, a great yeah. film, actually. It was well, a, thank you. I mean, I was really. I, it was my first film. I don't know. You know, you you make something and then you. Make another one, then you make another one. It was, you know, I had no none to compare it to. Wasn't it? It was. It had a special anniversary just recently, I think, didn't it? Yeah, they did. A, the BFI did a thirty-year or twenty-five-year or whatever uh, release a DVD um, because I don't have a Blu-ray player. I've, I've not watched it. I watched it again. I watched it again. I thought it stood it's up fantastically. Yeah, really. Yeah, there's really some good. really good acting. I mean, for the first time, I thought, mm, what, what happened to you? You used to be good. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it was a, it was a, you say it was a different era, but actually the, the, the corrupt politician, British corrupt British politician sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, actually, now now you know you could make a film about yeah. that every week. So you'd be well, exactly. It's like no big deal. <laughs> <laughs> All together now, you've never had it so. Hard. In 1961, 
two teenage girls teamed up for a night on the town. Christine Keeler was 18 years old. Mandy Rice Davis was 16. Together, they were to discover that in an age of innocence, sex was the most powerful weapon of all. Three years after their first meeting, they brought down the British government. This is their story. It's true, and it's a scandal. One man was the key to the events that followed. His name was Stephen Ward. Christine, my darling, when you're as beautiful as you are, you don't have to say a thing. Just wet your lips and look willing. I could do wonders with you, little baby. If I could give you the power of time travel, Michael, and you could go back to any film set that was ever mm-hmm. being made anywhere in the world, which one would you go to just to sort of eavesdrop there to be a guest on it? Now, you could go for one scene in particular or you could go for the whole shoot. Well, I, I thought about that and I thought, you know, what I'd like to have done would be to to go and watch the, the climactic sequence of uh, The Seven Samurai being done. I, that would take me some months because it took them almost a year to do that, I believe. <laughs> it, it's so good. It's so effective. It's such a, a brilliant piece of filmmaking. And it must have been utterly miserable to shoot. Utterly miserable because it's rain coming down on stair rods. It's mud everywhere. You know, I always looked at that when I was making uh, uh, Memphis Bell because I made a decision when I made Memphis Bell. The first thing I did was get a, a B-17 aircraft and they're really tight. You're, you're like this. You're, you're going, oh, geez, Louise, what, what the hell am I going to do with it? So I thought, you know, I've never seen that on a film before about the, about these planes, so that's what I'm going to do. Uh, like Das Boot. I'm going to make it like compressed. Yeah. So I decided never to use wider than a 50-millimeter lens, which is basically straight, you know, you know I say. Uh, I was making a rod for my own back to do that because you're doing a shot and the, the, the guys are in this aeroplane that's going like that and your camera's going like that. And to just get a close-up, you're going like that all the time. So we'd spend like hours and hours to try and get a close-up. And I thought, I'm dying, I'm dying. I can't, I can't make this film like this. It's just so slow. And once we had finished, it was a good lesson for me, once I'd finished shooting the film, the feeling of compression was gone for me but on the film you're watching it and you are completely claustrophobic about it and it, it, you know it just showed me that you have to actually be very disciplined and sometimes it's very difficult and painful that you've actually got to go through it because you've got to remember it's the film it's not your experience at that point you, you have this reactors as well and especially with comedies that's the big secret is what's happening on the set and on the floor at the time is kind of irrelevant because it's only in context that this stuff will work. Very good, it, very good lesson. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, if you went to that Seven Samurai set, you, you, uh, you, would you see Mifune? You'd see, you'd yeah, see yeah, yeah, Mifune yeah. as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 He, he stuck a load of swords and a mound and running and get them. He's big for you uh, to see yeah. Mifune. Yeah, he's beautiful, man. I love him. Have you, have you ever fallen in love at the movies? Once. Because I was I was dating a French girl at the time, and we went to see French films, and it was deeply pretentious. Um, but I remember seeing um, La Talente, mm. which is a Jean Vigo film. Beautiful. And uh, there's a woman called Dita Parlo, and I, I thought she was kind of magical. Just the, just the, and the luminosity of the the cinematography just made her look. Oh. Mm. Um, but I think it, I think I, I, I did fall in love because that's the kind of woman that I like. Uh, with Irene Dunn in The Awful Truth. <laughs> I like them sassy. I like them mousy. I like them able to hit me with a quip and come back. It's a sense of humor. It's a sharpness. Uh, I like that. And she matched Cary Grant in that film and more. I think my brother's pretty swell, don't you? Oh, yeah. He's always been pretty swell to me. I was working my head off at the Virginia Club, but the minute he started doing better... Um, you know what I mean? Why, well, he made me give up my job and um, take a trip to London and Paris, and uh, I think that was pretty swell, don't you? 
What did you do with the Virginia Club? Well, well I see, did. I'll Barbara. tell her. It was a little act, a kind of, um, well, it's a little hard to explain. Have you got any record? Record? Oh, oh, yes, yes, we have some records. Well, maybe if we... Say, wait a minute. Don't anybody leave this room. I've lost my purse. Why, here it is. Oh, well, am I relieved. Well, uh, where are the records? Oh, come this way and I'll show you. <laughs> Look, will you kind of keep an eye on that for me? A screwball <laughs> woman. Yeah, they, they don't get better than those, actually. Yeah. All right. Oh, but yeah. Dita Parlo, a very good choice uh, yeah. as well. That's yeah. one of the most romantic films ever made. Uh, Latin, really? Yeah. I, think, yeah. oh, I tried to steal that secret so many times when he's lying in bed dreaming about her and she's lying in bed dreaming about him and they, they mix the two shots together and you, you, you suddenly go, oh, I get it. They're thinking yeah. of each other. One of your ex-punk national film and television school, Julian Temple, I think that's his, mm -hmm. his favourite film. He, he'll tell oh, really? That's a lot. He dreams of Latalon all the time, I think. I think he made a film. He made a film called Vigo actually about Jean Vigo so there you go well, have you got a favorite musical film or a favorite musical sequence or dance number in a particular film well I, I like a lot of them I mean the very obvious ones like the West Side Story and what have you but I, I think the, the the one I remember again because my dad used to <laughs> like it was there's a dance sequence in Seven Brides for Seven Brothers oh yeah and it's Quite brilliant, actually. It goes on for about five minutes, and it's it's the whole lot of them a sort of barn dance or a, he, a hoedown or something, and it's really athletic and energetic, and it's it's storytelling. But it's again, it reminds me. I like it because it reminds me of my dad, you know, and how you know my dad was like a miner. And yeah, well, <laughs> I love it. I love it that uh, you know someone like uh, your dad, your dad, our dads. You know, they you know it, it wasn't it wasn't a camp thing to like musicals. Then. No, you know, the big miners loved you know yeah, teary musicals or sort of athletic gentlemen jumping around. Absolutely, <laughs> they were completely at ease in their sexuality yeah. and their manhood and what have you. And it was uh, my uh, memories of growing up was that. Of course, you know, Scottish, so you've got to take, in, <laughs> take it with a breath, a, a, a pinch of salt. But, um, you know, the, the men were quite secure on the whole, certainly the ones that, that influenced me. They, were, they, they found no uh, difference between being strong, masculine and intelligent and sensitive. I mean, that's, uh, that's what I grew up with, and that's what I thought everyone was until I came to London. <laughs> <laughs> Full of weirdos down here we are, I tell you. Uh, what about uh, your favourite cinema? Because obviously you've, you've been to many, you've had films played yeah. in many. So the favourite cinema, I don't know, that, that, that you've been into, and, and maybe a favourite screening that you've actually attended. Well, my favourite cinema is in New York City, uh, the Ziegfeld. Uh, oh. It's a huge, huge room. It's just a big old room, and it, you know, if you are, there's nothing better than having a big screen. You know, I, I don't mind if there's anybody there or not. <laughs> I, I just love sitting there with a, a big screen and good sound. Um, and you've, uh, you've, best... you've been to the Ziegfeld to watch? Uh, yeah, 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 I have. I, I remember seeing um, oh, the um, Last of the Mohicans there. Oh yeah, particularly good. Yeah, that would look great up there. Because uh, kind of old-fashioned Western sort of situation, yeah. but uh, uh, you know, Michael Mann. Where you you almost have to go like that. Yeah, <laughs> looking, <laughs> looking the looking the vision. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the 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 best screening actually was in that I've ever had was I mean it was in was at the London Film Festival with our ladies, in in October, twenty nineteen. Um, it was the first screening uh, of the film ever to the public, and I had only finished uh, putting the last nail in it on the Wednesday, and this was on the Friday. And it was uh, this uh, this screen that they built down at the embankment. Oh yeah, Victoria Garden, big, yeah. big old sucker, and it was the it was the biggest screen in London. It was bigger than Leicester Square anywhere there. It was huge. Oh, and it sat eight hundred people, mm. and. I'd finished the film on the, the um, Wednesday. It turned up there, still sort of <laughs> bouncing around the place. And then walked in and had to introduce the film, and it was mobbed. It was jammed. And, you know, to sit in a room where people are laughing at stuff that you put in, little tiny details, a bit of that, well, maybe nobody will notice. We'll just put it in anyway. To sit there, it was like, ah. Oh. 
oh, rub this all over me, man. Oh, you can't buy this. It was absolutely incredible. They, they got it. They laughed. The laughs started rolling at the climax. It was supposed to be funny, but it, started, it didn't stop laughing. Someone was laughing here, there, and everywhere. And when you do the, what someone described to me is, and I won't mention too much of it, it's an emotional cry turn immediately <laughs> after the uh, after the uh, climax of the film. You To hear the place go, Woof! and really pay attention, it's just everything you're trying to manipulate in an audience and say, if you go there, you'll get this. If you go there, you'll get this. And they got it all. And... I was I was high as a kite for days. Oh, that's oh. a lovely story because it is so rare in film to sort of yeah. almost you know do the dress rehearsal and sort of usher it out onto stage like you know yeah. like, like you do in an activity yeah. play with kids and so that and across your fingers. Yeah. You know. and you've spent you spent years working on this little baby and you put it out and they go hmm. Oh well, I'm, that's that's a heartwarming story and a great screen. I don't, I don't think they're, they're, they're having that screen back again. I thought oh, it was okay. a beautiful, beautiful screen. What, what's your favourite film location, Michael? just before we finish that you've filmed in all that you've ever seen on screen and thought wow I want to go there well um, I, I did manage to go and shoot with a, with a place that I loved which was Monument Valley um, I shot the opening sequence of this boy's life in Monument Valley because I could and it's it's spectacularly beautiful it's where John Ford shot all his westerns yeah. so you've got these buttes and mesas and and clouds and blue and red earth and everything. And I shot the opening sequence of, uh, of This Boy's Life there. I went down in a helicopter uh, and we had the producer chasing us saying, OK, we're running out of money. You've got, you've got to come down now. And we just rubbed the microphone and said, I can't hear you. And keep on shooting. And actually, we landed on one of the mesas and reloaded the camera. You're not allowed to do that. The interesting thing is from the top, all you see is all these blasted branches that got hit by... Um, uh, lightning strikes, but both Monument Valley and the Scottish Highlands are two of the best locations I've ever shot. I've ever shot, and, and to look at on screen, yeah. it's just spectacular. And and you can make it be anything. You make it be intimate. You can make it be wide. You make it be grand. You make it be anything. Uh, it's just a wonderful backdrop uh, for for a story to be set. Michael, wonderful film memories of a brilliant film career and a really lovely uh, way of ushering in people to see our ladies as well because you well, you, you managed to get yeah. that in. Uh, really enjoyed talking to you. Really lovely to, to catch Thank up. You. And uh, congratulations on our ladies. Thanks so much for joining me on Seeing Any Good Films Lately. Thank you. Superb stuff from Michael Caton-Jones. Thanks so much, Michael, for joining us. And some great recommends in there, such as Hell in the Pacific and, of course, The Seven Samurai. What else can I recommend? I enjoyed Timothy Spall in The Last Bus. I had the pleasure of hosting a Q&A with the great man himself the other night to talk about his role in the film. It's about an octogenarian man who journeys from John O'Groats at the tip of Scotland to Land's End at the bottom of Cornwall, the longest journey you can make in the UK, about 938 miles, I think it is, uh, all by public bus using just his bus pass. Are you going somewhere? Far, far away. That sounds exciting. It's a train ride back. Stay, honey, watch me smile. I can make it last for miles and miles. I think I know you. You are a brave man. Please take this. Your money's not good in here, mate. Come on. Thank you. How a bunch of lyrics put into a song Takes you extraordinary places where you don't belong A frozen mind doesn't know You don't have to do this Yes, I do I love you, Tom And tonight you don't want to go home And tonight you don't want to go home And today you'd rather stay What are you all doing here? We're here for you Tim's great as Tom, giving a spiky performance in a, what could have been a sentimental film, and he never lets that overtake it. He's always got an edge to him. He's a cantankerous old man, is Tom, but we warm to him. Great performance from Timothy Spall, another one in the pantheon of great Spall characters. There's also Jude Law in The Nest at the moment. Jude is very good in this as he usually is when he plays a complete bastard. Here he's a banker in 1980s London, trying to make a big deal, but poisoning his family along the way with ambition and greed and desperation. I have a huge cheque coming in at the end of the month. We stop worrying about this once and for all. 
Really, Rory, at the end of the month? Before the end of the month, within 10 days. What's it for? Don't worry, it's coming. I saw some deposits you made. It's nowhere near what you're spending. It's taking time. It takes time. It's coming. Here's the next payment. It's the one. All right. Well, if you have all this money coming in 10 days, then you can buy me dinner. We can order whatever we want. Of course. Of course. Are you ready to order, sir? Yeah, I think so. We'll start with a dozen oysters and a shrimp cocktail. My princess will have the Chateaubriand, and I'll do the whole roasted sea bass. Let's start with a bottle of white, and then we'll have red with our dinner, whatever you think goes best with our food. Don't look at him. I've told you what we wanted. Thank you. <laughs> you're embarrassing. And you're exhausting. It's a strange film, one that doesn't really bother recreating the period at all. I don't know if they ran out of budget or it all went on Jude, um, but it's an artistic choice that for me backfires because I kept wondering, well, why they weren't doing the period. But nevertheless, great performances. Jude's really good. Uh, Carrie Coon as his wife, also very good. And um, uh, Adil Akhtar pops up in it too, wearing a, quite an H's suit, actually, that one. Uh, so that's The Nest. And there's Welsh black comedy The Toll out now too. I premiered that at Green Man and it stars Michael Smiley, who's always worth watching. He plays a loner operating the loneliest toll booth in all Wales, but whose criminal past suddenly catches up with him. Watch out for rampaging triplets and a deadly Elvis impersonator. Ten, ten. Oh, I don't know the call for this. There's been a terrorist incident. A what? They were speaking their own language. They weren't speaking in English. You don't think they could have been speaking Welsh? This gentleman has been sent by a crime family. We're intent on taking over your turf. Hand over your takings. How much is it? One pound twenty. Oh, come on. We usually encourage tourists to stick to sightseeing. Anything unusual today? Do you have anything to chop him up with? Nothing out of the obvious. What can anyone tell me about our friend in the toll booths? Yeah, I told you that one was weird. <laughs> right. I'm off to the Venice Film Festival next week, so that's about the end of this uh, edition of Seen Any Good Films Lately. I will definitely be doing a Venice special, as I did last year, for my next instalment, and hopefully I'll have some juicy star interviews for you, and certainly the first reviews of what's likely to be some early award season contenders, including Kristen Stewart as uh, Lady Di in Spencer, and Penelope Cruz in the new Almodovar film, Parallel Mothers. Until then... Let's blow my own jazz trumpet once more and go out with some more reflections from Jazz on a Summer's Day from Green Man Festival. See you cats soon. Having all these jazz people here, it really feels like a moment. I don't know if it's a UK moment. I don't know if, if you all sit together and kind of go, right, brilliant, you do this, before you do that. I know they play together, but it all seems to be coming together at the, at the right time for you lot. I mean, we, we all know each other and a lot of us went to the same music college. And for us, it just feels very normal to be, you know, playing alongside people or, you know, people from different bands sort of swapping and stuff, because it's just like a big extended web throughout London and, and the UK. Mm -hmm.